Well, good morning, Norris Ferry. Man, I, I'll be honest, I never know what to do with that little intro video. I feel like I'm on a runway and I should like, you know, like do like a little, little strut or something. But hey, if, if I haven't met you yet, or maybe if I have met you, but 80% of your face was covered by a piece of cloth, um, then my name is Jake. I've been here for about a year or so now. I serve as the, as the student minister, which just blows my mind that my family has lived here for a, for a whole year uh, now. It's crazy. But so if you haven't noticed yet, many of our staff um, are gone to a wedding in southern Louisiana. So Lana, um, some of you guys know Lana. She's getting married this weekend. So a lot of them are gone, which means um, that Tracy left the service up to me um, and Jamie, which are the two newest staff members. So I don't, I don't know if that speaks highly of us, or if it speaks lowly of Tracy for asking us to, to do that. I haven't really figured that out yet, but uh, alas, here, here we are. We'll find out together. So if you have your Bibles, um, you can go ahead and open it up to the book of Luke. We'll be in the, chap- the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. So last week, Tracy opened us up to chapter 18 by going through the parable of the widow. And in that parable, we saw a great example of what it looks like to be in a desperate situation, but to not lose hope. And instead of turning to other band-aids or other temporary fixes or things like that that we often go to in times of trouble, we are to not lose heart and to turn to Jesus instead. And so as we approach verse 9 in the text where we're at today, Luke records another parable of Jesus in order to communicate another truth about who Jesus is. Because that's what a parable does, right? A parable, it's a, it's a way, it's another way of illustrating a, a truth. And similar to the previous parable from last week, Luke pretty much opens up this parable by, by telling us who it's originally being written to and, and more or less what it's about. So he kind of he gives us a spoiler at the, at the very beginning about what it's about. So it says in verse 9, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So right out of the chute, we see it. This parable is being written to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That means when they, when they considered what was required of them to be accepted into God's kingdom, they intuitively and they, and they naturally looked to their external morality. They intuitively and naturally looked to their, their spiritual resume and to their spiritual accolades and ultimately ultimately they looked to and trusted in themselves for salvation and maybe maybe they were aware of that and maybe they just kind of owned it like they knew what they were doing they're like yeah that's that's me so I'm just going to roll it I'm going to I'm going to do that or maybe they were not even aware of the fact that they were doing that at all which is kind of a scary thought to think about that that's that's possible that we could be depending on ourselves for our salvation and not even be aware of it. And because they did that, it says that they treated others with contempt, which, man, just how, how true is that of us? Isn't it true that when we, have, when we have an inflated view of ourselves, we oftentimes see other people as inferior, right? We're, we're quick to size them up. We're quick to, to judge them. We're even quick to maybe assume different things about them as well. Well, apparently that's exactly what's going on in this text. And the parable uh, that's being written, is, it's, uh, it's being written for just that person. Man, so instead of thinking, man, I'm, I'm so glad I'm not like that. You know, I'm, I'm so glad that that's not me. Let, let's just stop and own the fact 
that every one of us in here, at some point or another, every one of us in here has an inclination towards self-righteousness. And it could look like different things, and, um, you know, and it, it, but it affects all of us, even the most humble person in this room. And the spirit and that spirit of self-righteousness that we sometimes get, okay, it can, it can keep us from coming to know Jesus as our Savior. So we can actually, you know, not be able to, to come to know Jesus at all because we, because we don't realize that we need him. But then also, it can also pop back up sometimes even after we know Christ. And it can keep us from growing in Christ as well. And that's why it's so important for us to remind ourselves and to, and to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over again because, and this is the big idea for this, for this morning, because only the humble in heart can be made righteous. Only the humble in heart can be made righteous. So let's read the rest of our text this morning, and then we'll pray together and we'll get moving. So we just read verse 9. All right, so now we're going to go through 10 through 14. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. God, help us to evaluate ourselves rightly this morning. God, help us to see different ways. And I pray that your spirit would would convict our hearts and help us to see different ways that we are depending on ourselves for our righteousness. And God, it's it's a dangerous prayer to pray. It is. But God, I pray that you would humble us this morning. I pray that you would humble us through this text. It will ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, I have a question for you guys real fast. Have you ever been in a situation, you can show me by a raise of hands, have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you did not belong, like you just knew, like you do, you do, not, you do not belong in this, in this location? So I'll never forget, before we took this position at Norris Ferry, and while I was traveling and interviewing for ministry positions all over creation, um, it seemed like, so Rachel was working full-time um, as a counselor, which meant that I was the sole care provider for our son Jackson uh, for about six months. And I can remember during that time while Rachel was gone, and I went, to, I went into to full manny mode, right? So if you don't know, that's a, to a nanny who is a man. So that was me, a manny. So every day I was responsible for, for all of the baby things, which kind of side note, it was about 10 times harder than I ever would have anticipated. So those of you out there, a lot of moms especially, that keep your, your children during the day, man, props to you because it's, it's way harder than I would have anticipated. But in, anyways, so all throughout the week, we would go to the library, we'd go to the park, I'd take care of all the, all the logistics, I, I would take him to all the doctor's visits, and of course, all the diapers, and do all the grocery shopping, and all that kind of stuff. And probably more than the details of that season of life, what I remember more than anything else was how I often felt. 
So I remember I would show up at the park with a stroller and the backpack and the, and the bottles and all the, other, all the other baby things. And all the moms would kind of sort of be on the side in their, in their huddle, you know, just kind of doing their thing. And then they'd see me and they'd be like, locked on. Like, who's, who's, who's that guy? Why is he here? Surely he has a white van with no windows somewhere in the, in the parking lot. All, all that to say, I, I, did not, I did not belong there, or at least I didn't feel like I belonged there. And as we continue on in our text this morning and sort of, sort of build the profile for the two, the two characters that, were, that are being developed in this parable, it's safe to say that one of the characters in that story felt like they did not belong. So let's, let's set the scene here and kind of look at what's going on. It says in verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Let's just, let's just stop there for a moment and kind of, kind of consider what's, what's going on here because this is, a, this is a pretty big deal. This is a pretty big deal. The Pharisee in this parable, he practically, he practically owned the place, right? He was, he was really comfortable with being at the temple. He was known for being this, this morally upright guy and for having, having all the answers and having all the spiritual boxes checked off. He had, this, he had a reputation for being that way. He had, some, he had some serious church swag, if you want to go there. So that's, that's the Pharisee on one hand. And on the other hand, we have the tax collector. So the tax collector, he also, he has a reputation that precedes him. He's known for basically being a traitor of his people. He's a pretty, pretty slimy and a pretty sleazy dude. So the tax collector, he's responsible for receiving all the taxes for the king. However, he's likely known for, for adding an extra charge, adding an extra rate to kind of beef up his pockets a little bit. And because he had the authority of the kingdom behind him, there's nothing that anybody could do about it. He's the guy who rolls up in the, the tricked out bins. He's covered in gold chains, probably has a spray tan, and probably smells like Axe body spray. No offense, middle schoolers, to you over there. So everyone knows that he's an immoral guy. Everyone knows that he's probably rolling up in the temple, coming off of his most recent high. And, and, and he knows that. He knows that just as much as they do as well. He knows that everyone knows that. And that's a big deal. Why is that a big deal? You see, the Pharisee, he's just going through the motions. He's, he's playing church, and he's maintaining his reputation for being an externally good guy. It doesn't mean anything for him to come into the temple. That's, that's just what he does, right? That's, that's a part of his culture. The tax collector, however, on, on the other hand, he's, he's showing up at the, at the temple with a totally different posture. He's showing up, and he's desperate. Maybe he was out partying the night before for the, the third night in a row and he's, he's, starting to feel, he's starting to feel broken and he's starting to feel empty inside. Maybe he's starting to feel the conviction for the, la the lifestyle of, of flashy wealth and instant gratification that he's been pursuing. I'm, I'm not really sure, but, but one thing that we can piece together from looking at the text is that the tax collector is acutely aware of his sin and he is acutely aware of the fact that he has nothing to offer God and that he is in desperate need of God. So he wakes up, he gets up out of bed, he rolls into the temple, just hoping, just hoping to hear or experience or see something that's going to feed his soul. 
So that's the scene that we see playing out before us. A Pharisee, he shows up at the temple, business as usual, and a tax collector who likely feels out of place, who likely feels uncomfortable, who, who knows that something's got to change in his life. So now that we've kind of established, now that we've kind of figured those things out and set the scene a little bit, we're going we're gonna to make three different observations from the text this morning. So if you're taking notes, you can, you can write this down. I'm going to be a little bit quick, so, so hang on. So observation number one, the self-righteous look to God's law. The self-righteous look to God's law. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. So one of the first things that we notice about the Pharisee in these verses is that he's, he's standing by himself. Right? That's one of the first observations that we make. And, and that little detail, it's included in here, not because he's lonely and not because he doesn't have any friends necessarily. The reason that the Pharisee is standing by himself is because he's probably proud, right? He sees himself on a whole other level as everyone else. He sees himself as an untouchable. The picture that's being painted here, it's one, of, it's one of irony, actually, because the Pharisee, he's the most likely guy at the temple that day to, to act the most spiritual. He's the one that's most likely to use the most spiritual vocabulary. He, he's most likely the one to try to get in and out of there with trying to make everyone think that he has the most direct line to God. And it's ironic because it's really quite the opposite, actually. And let me show you why. The reason why is because the Pharisee is looking to God's law. Now, whether his, his intentions are, are good or, or bad, I, I can't really tell you. I'm not sure. But ultimately, he is looking to God's law for his righteousness. He is looking for a moral standard that he can compare himself with against other people. And so now just for, a, just for a really kind of brief survey of the Old Testament, so put on, your, put on your nerdy glasses for a second, for a really brief survey. If you remember, God created man to be set apart and in his image. He created man to know him and to enjoy a perfect relationship with him forever. But because of our rebellion, we separated ourselves from God. We took advantage of our liberties. We took advantage of our freedoms, and we, and we use them for our own gratification. And because of that, mankind was separated from God. And that's when sin entered into the world. And to make a, a really long story short, because humanity was so lost and so estranged from relationship with God, a holy and, and righteous God, he established covenants with his people, right? And those covenants were protected by different laws, so God establishes covenants with his people and he protects those covenants through different laws. You see, those laws, they were never meant to be the point. Those laws were never meant to define what knowing God looks like. They were only there and they are only there to protect God's people from themselves, to establish some, some parameters and, and some boundaries so that they can stay connected with God and to ultimately, ultimately to point to there and to point to our need for a more perfect sacrifice or a savior. 
And to point back to the text, the reason that the Pharisee is praying and the reason that the Pharisee is thanking God that he is not like the other men, the extortioners and unjust and adulterers and all that, and the reason why the Pharisee is reminding God that he fasts and that he tithes and does all of these morally upright things as if God needed to know, the reason he does that is because the Pharisee thinks this is what it's all about. This, this, is, what, this is everything that matters. He's missing the whole point entirely. And because he's missing it, maybe, he, maybe he's this arrogant, you know, I'm, I'm better than you type of guy. You know, or maybe he's genuinely thankful that he's not an extortioner and that he's not an adulterer and all those things, all those things that he lists. I'm, I'm not really sure, but either way, he is dependent on himself. He is self-righteous. And we can read that and we can kind of be annoyed at this guy, right? We can kind of be annoyed at him for being kind of a goody two-shoes. But if we really look at it even more, it kind of becomes sad. We kind of mourn for this guy. We mourn for him because he somehow thinks that he is able to follow God's law perfectly, Somehow he thinks that. He somehow thinks that if he just adds this rhythm of his life, takes away this speed bump, serves this number of times at the food pantry, memorizes this many verses, eats this much organic grass-fed beef, listens to this many podcasts, whatever, then, then he will live up to God's standard. So the self-righteous, they look to God's law, just like the Pharisee did. And sadly and ironically, it is for that very reason that connection with God is pushed further and further and further away. Let's keep going. All right, observation number two, the humble look to God's mercy. The humble look to God's mercy. So, so we have the Pharisee over here looking to God's law, and on the other hand, we have the tax collector. So what does the tax collector do? Verse 13 says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And just like the previous verse that mentioned where the Pharisee was standing, this, this is so cool. Let's, let's, not, let's not miss this. It shows us where the tax collector was standing as well. The tax collector was standing far off. So what, what does this mean? Does this mean that we should, we should stand far off from each other whenever we go to church? Maybe, maybe during COVID, but ultimately, no, that's, that, that's not what this means. This detail of the tax collector standing far off, it's included in the text because it shows us a snapshot. It shows us a snapshot into the heart of the tax collector. The Pharisee had a posture towards God that lacked awe. The Pharisee had a posture towards God that lacked reverence. It was very moralistic. It was very transactional. The tax collector, however, when he came into the temple, he's thinking, man, I know I've messed up. I know I don't deserve to be here. I know that I'm just a, a big mess, but maybe if I go into this temple and, and see what this whole God thing is about, then maybe, just maybe, something will change. So he walked in, and out of an awareness of his sin, out of awareness, out of an awareness of his filthiness, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, it says. He was just barely crawling in, and it says that he, he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Man, that is a desperate and a dramatic story. And what a different posture towards God that the tax collector has compared to the Pharisee. You see, the, the tax collector, he was, he was humble in the truest sense of the word. The tax collector knew that if gaining access to God had anything to do with his ability to follow rules, to do good things, to maintain a certain image, have your reputation for being holy, any of that, then he had no chance at all. The tax collector showed up at the temple that day knowing that his only shot at being in God's presence and at turning his life around all relied on one thing only, and that was God's mercy. And he cried out to God, and he, he threw himself into God's arms saying, God, be merciful to me, please. It's my only shot. It's my last chance. I know I deserve death. I know I don't deserve to be here with you. I don't have stock in anything else, nothing else except for your mercy. Help me. Oh, God. Isaiah 66, too, it reminds us, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble, he who is contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Psalm 18, 27, we're shown, for, for you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. And finally, again, in Matthew 5, a lot of you guys are familiar with this, his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So what does God do? Which prayer is God delighted with? And that's the tax collector. You better believe it. And that's because the tax collector was humble in heart, he was humble in the truest sense of the word. Which, me, which leads me to the final observation. Observation number three. Only the humble are justified. Only the humble are justified. So to, to start closing down and kind of summarize the, the parable. So Jesus tells him, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Man, well, that's a, that's a dinger right there, isn't it? Everything about this goes against our, our natural inclination. Everything about this conflicts with the ways that our hearts operate. The one who, the one who humbles himself is exalted? The, the poor in spirit, those are the ones who, who get to inherit the kingdom of God, the, the tax collector, the guy who is clearly and, and obviously a, a bad dude. He's the one who goes home justified and not the moral Pharisee with the, with the clean record. How in the world does that work? The question takes us back to the main idea of the whole passage, and, and more so it takes us straight to the very heart of Jesus the reason that the tax collector is, is the one who goes home justified and the reason why it's only the humble in heart that are made righteous is because that is exactly who Jesus came to save. Jesus didn't come to save the righteous, but to save the sinner. Jesus didn't come for those that live in the illusion that they have it all together. He didn't come to earth, live a sinless life, die a cruel and a painful death, and then rise again so that we can put together and deliver a sorry presentation of why we're good enough for him to love us. 
Jesus came because he looked down and we saw that we're desperate and that we're hopeless apart from him. Without Jesus, we're, we're like a car going 100 miles an hour towards a brick wall and we're not slowing down. We can't earn our relationship with him because his standard is perfection, which was a standard that only he was able to live out. And we can't grow either. We can't grow as Christians without him because only the spirit can develop holiness in us. We need Jesus. And the bottom line is that we will never own the fact that we need Jesus unless we have hearts that are humble, like the tax collector. Man, and was it, was it a bad thing that the, that the tax collector, that, that he was not an adulterer? And was it bad that, that he was not unjust and that he tithed and that he fasted? Man, of, of course not. Of course it wasn't bad that, that he was that person, that he did those things. Those are great things. Those are, those are things that we are actually called to pursue ourselves. But the difference is that when we pursue those things as people that, that know and that follow Jesus, we do it because we are already holy through the righteousness of Christ that he gives us. We pursue those things because we know Jesus and we want to know more of him. They're fruits. They're fruits of his spirit. So where does that leave us this morning? How should we... How should we walk away from this passage and go home and, and go out from here? So three quick responses. So for the person that is here and that feels sort of like the tax collector, you're, you're aware of your sin. You feel the guilt and the, and the shame of your rebellion. Man, praise God. Praise God that you're here and praise God that you, that you feel that conviction. Cry out to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I know I can't keep doing this. And the, and the desires and the selfish ambitions that I keep chasing after, they're, they're only leaving me more and more empty. Cry out to God and say, save me. Save me from my sin. Fall into God's mercy. And just like the tax collector, you will go home justified. And for the person that's here, and, and maybe, maybe you resonate a little bit more with a, with a Pharisee, possibly, and you've been living in the illusion that being a Christian is about maintaining morality, and it's about doing good things, and it's about functionally, so you wouldn't say this, but it's about functionally trusting in yourself. And ask God to search your heart to take off the blinders from your eyes so you can see just, just how potent your sin really is. Man, I'm, I'm genuinely glad that you strive to live a moral life and you're committed to, to doing good things. However, God's standard for knowing him is, is perfection. And the Bible tells us that we're all sinners and that we all fall short of God's glory. So look to the perfection of God and, and be humbled and fall into God's mercy. And for the person that, that is in Christ and that, and that has made a profession of faith, which I think is, is probably most people in here, but, but has a tendency to forget 
that both salvation and sanctification, so both salvation and the process of growing in holiness and the process of looking more and more like Christ, both of those all have to do, and both of those are 100% contingent on the gospel. Ask God to help you bear that fruit again and fall into his mercy. Look again to the gospel and be humbled by it. Because only the humble in heart can be made righteous. Let's pray. God, please make us a humble people. God, whatever it takes, just empty us of ourselves and just chisel out all the selfishness and um, just the hardness of heart that we have and, and uh, the inclination that we have towards self-righteousness. God, empty us of that and make us able to be filled with your righteousness so that we can bear fruit in your kingdom. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.